I'm James Payne, and I produce large pieces of public art. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that I instantly have a question because I, you say I produce large pieces of public art. Can I ask in in your art career, did you always know you wanted to produce? public art out in the environment outside where does your stuff go and why public and not private what is it how does it feel different to you um so yes so over the course of my career i've i my work has been getting larger and larger okay. i started out uh producing um little tiny sculptures that i created uh from cutting up credit cards and you know they're they're two inches tall, but they are are spiky and exciting, and I've always thought that they should be thirty feet tall, um, and that's um, you know there's sort of a size where you get get beyond what somebody's going to add to their private collection. Um, I certainly know of people that do have large works of art in their yard, but um, it, it seems like um, over a certain size, you're looking at like public plazas or um, corporate campuses or, or things like that, where they're, they're more publicly available. And I'm curious. So obviously credit card size thing, if it's something torn up or made out of pieces of a credit card, you know, you can hold that in your hands. The one I saw locally is huge, would not, I feel like would not fit comfortably fully assembled in the back of a large pickup truck. Like that just isn't, that's too much weight. It's too big. Has anybody bought anything from you? So you could fit it if you had, if you were ultra wealthy and had a giant mansion with a huge public space, you could plonk this in a huge room. Has anybody wanted to do that? Or has anybody had any made noise about that? Um, no, not yet. <laughs> okay. um, I'm, I'm very excited about the possibility of putting something in an atrium somewhere. I, I think that would be great. Um, in and among, you know, some jungle greenery. Right. Um, but but no, um, I have sold a couple of pieces into private collections. Um, the piece that's in Olathe right now, uh, isolation, is about 30 feet long, about 12 feet tall, and about 16 feet wide. And the ones that I have in private collections are, are about half that size or a little bit smaller. Could you describe way back when, when you were first toying with the first thing where you're sort of cutting up and reshaping a credit card, could you describe what that looked like and then how that developed and what I now see is this large wooden or metal or other material spiral thing. So I'm just curious about how it developed from this, where the impetus came from the small tear up and twist. And you're like, I want this yeah. to be bigger. Yeah. So um, as, as I mentioned, I started out with credit cards um, sort of because um, I'm sure you remember the ubiquitous AOL CDs that, um, they would send them to you so frequently that you'd have a stack, right. you know, on the side of your table because you couldn't throw them away fast enough. Credit cards are sort of like that. People will send you, um, you know, sample mock-up credit cards with your name printed on it or, you know, trying to get you to, to subscribe to something or else. Um, and so I had a stack of credit cards and one day I just started cutting them up and, and the game is, um, it has to be one one piece. Okay. So you cut the credit card into some shape uh, without actually cutting it in half. So it's it's you know um, maybe it's one long strand, uh, maybe it's you know cut 
it's some more complicated thing. But then I uh, I would bend them up, um, you know, bend them back on themselves to make these interesting structures. And what what I guess I found was that, um, and I guess it's obvious, but straight lines make awesome curves if you put enough straight lines together, just offset a little bit from each other. Um, so I, as the things started to get bigger, uh, I, I first started out, um, you know, scaling up with sheets of PVC and cutting them with a, um, a jigsaw and then heating them over, um, like a construction heater blowing into a cinder block furnace. But still the game the, being one, one material piece. So you credit cards, it's bigger, but it's still one piece or did you already switch to like multiple pieces? No, okay. no single piece. Um, and I, eventually I got to, um, a logistical maximum there, right? A three by four foot piece of PVC. Um, that's about a quarter inch thick. Uh, once it gets thicker than that, it's, um, it's hard for me to, uh, to heat it in such a way that, um, that it can be uh, manipulated, um, and bent as, as one, as one unit, okay. like, uh, um, at a certain point you have to heat a joint and move that and then heat another joint and move that. And that wasn't really giving me the results that I liked. Uh, so I started looking for different mediums. Um, I took a, a detour into um, uh, metal fabric, mm -hmm. which is sort of like chicken wire, but with like half-inch uh, gaps between the wires um, and forming them into beams. Um, my, my first large-scale artwork was about 13 feet tall, made out of these beams. Um, and... Um, it looked it looked really really interesting, but um, to your point about having things inside, um, this was outside, and um, uh, I live in Vermont, and the win winters up here can be brutal, and um, these metal fabric structures just aren't up for the challenge of having a foot of snow on them. Okay, the snow was uncut. Um, it didn't hold. It did. You literally. It did not hold shape. What happened to it in the cold? Uh, the cold was okay. It was the, it was the weight of the snow that, um, that crushed it. Um, it, it was actually, um, that piece had been sold into a private collection and the, um, the people who had bought it were very gracious about it. Um, we tried putting up, um, supports under the, uh, under the beams that, we're having issues and that sort of worked, but then there was one blizzard that, that just, um, destroyed it. Um, so they were gracious about that. And, um, I replaced it with something else that I had. Um, yeah. Did you, did you not want to try to convince them that um, what seemed like a very permanent structure is actually um, a testimony on the theme of ephemeral nature and how things fall apart and are deconstructed over time? Uh, I, I think that they actually, they were right there. Oh, okay. They right so they're like, me. we don't yeah. hate the fact that this sort of fell apart. It's not the thing that made us. Okay. No. Um, and in fact, they, they have two other pieces of mine. One of the large scale ones. 
Um, so the the piece that's in Olathe isolation is um, is one of a series okay. that I've done using the same kinds of construction techniques. And um, when I had the idea, I, I call that series. I call it series six. Um, and there's four or five of them, I guess. Um, and the first one, you know, when I had the idea, uh, was shortly after, um, the other piece had collapsed. And so I wrote the, the, my patrons and I said, um, you know, I've got this, this other piece that I'm envisioning. I think it would look great in your yard. And, um, how would you, um, how would you feel about, um, paying me for the materials, right. uh, which they did. And, um, they've been very happy with it and um, it's, it's decomposing because it's wood. It's been there for about five years. And so it settles into the ground and, you know, the, the paint uh, it's not peeling, but you know, there's some deterioration and it's really interesting to watch it as it, um, as it weathers. And, um, and I, I think they like that too. In fact, you know, I've offered to rehab parts of it and they've, They've said now they like it the way it is. Is that I'm trying to remember? I tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the one in Olathe is unpainted wood. Is that painted metal but it's, unpainted wood? It's stained. Okay, stained. Okay. Yeah. Was theirs fully? Because I did see other ones in the series. Looking through like your Instagram and looking at your other works, like some things are fully yeah. painted one color, some things are different colors. So this one, um, it, it, if you recall, there's a photograph of me standing, a drone photograph of me standing in, inside one. Um, and that's this piece. It was, um, it's a, like a white wash. Uh, it, so it's not, uh, I mean, it, it looks painted, uh, but it, it's white, gray. Okay, I'm curious about just uh, the terrible thing about this podcast is that the ideal thing would be like, I would just show pictures of like, obviously, people can go look at this stuff. When people ask you to describe what does your art look like? And if you don't have a picture, how do you describe it to somebody? Yeah, I say, you know, that's the funny thing, because um, I started preparing for this podcast, <laughs> and I've done some online uh, interviews before. And I'm like, hey, so, you know, I need to get some slides together. And I was like, oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so um, I tell people that they are large wooden pieces made up of spars or beams swirling around a center spine. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's, I feel like it's, so it's the metal spine and it is wooden beams coming out in a sort of spiral pattern that doesn't, that goes all the way around. So it's not just, yes. you haven't laid a piece of metal on the ground and then it's sort of a fan. It's the wood itself is the thing that is spun all the way around this metal. The metal almost, does it ever touch, does it touch the ground at, at all? The, the the spine does not touch the ground. Sure. The, the one in Olathe, I think the spine is about five feet. It's just about parallel to the ground, about five feet above it. And so the, the, the beams are um, 12 foot long, six by sixes. And as they spiral, spiral around the center spine, some of them, um, some of them are embedded. The ends of some of them are embedded in the ground. Yes. So 
I really like that. So this thing that they said where they saw it, like as things are decomposing, like, no, no, leave it. Or as it got pushed down, they're like, oh, we don't hate that it did that. It feels like it is built. It's big enough and it's wooden. And it reminds me of like combines and threshers. So spinning farm equipment. So I'm like, that's surely it. I thought that's what it always was. You made like a visual representation of a large piece of farming equipment that's cutting through crops. And I looked at all your other things. I'm like, no, this wasn't necessarily a crop thing. This is something else. (laughs) Um, You know, the idea of them reminding you of machines, um, I don't find that offensive at all. Um, um, ultimately they are, they're machine like, right? Like I, um, I make a bunch of parts that are essentially exactly the same. Um, the Olathe piece has, um, three, um, five different parts really. Um, and then I just assemble them. Um, so it's machine like in that, um, I feel um, um, I feel uh, I, I like to express nature through them. Um, you know, the spirals that um, spirals that are found in nature, I think, are fascinating. And um, I don't know if that's why, but a lot of my work um, seems to end up embodying spirals in, in some way or another. Um, so. I- before I, I want to ask you all about like, you know, this spiral thing keeps going and going and going. Is this an art versus commerce thing? Before I do that, I want to ask maybe the commerce part of selling public art. So it's one thing to have private patrons. What is the situation when you're selling to a business or a city or a county? How does that come about? And how did the Olathe one come about? How does how does somebody find you? How do you find them? How do you decide to park your thing there and get paid for it? Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of a work in progress. Um, I'm, um, I'm working towards being a full-time artist. I'm, I'm not yet. Um, there are a number of sites online um, that uh, help artists find what they call calls for entry. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of Olathe, um, the, the city um, put up a posting on this particular uh, call for entry site, um, explaining what they were looking for. And, um, this piece isolation had actually been, um, I had produced it during COVID for a show in Jamestown, Rhode Island, where it, it spent the summer. Um, so I had brought it home and it was literally in a pile in my yard. And, um, that I saw this call for entry and I, and I entered into it. Um, I, which basically means um, I expressed my interest. I told them uh, why I thought it was a good fit. I included a bunch of photographs of that piece and some of my other works. Um, And I convinced them that um, there was a good chance that I could actually transport it halfway across the country and set it up on their, in their timeframe. Okay. Because you did say, obviously, it's now it doesn't stay together. It's long. It's a huge piece. It's multiple pieces to transport. So, okay, you say, yeah, I think I can get it there. Do they? So what's this? The thing about Surprise Me, you had a post up and you asked people in Olathe, hey, could somebody go and take pictures of this? What's the condition, the the size of it, et cetera, because I'm going to have to move it. I'm like, why would you have to move it when a city buys public art? If it's not like a, I think of an exhibit in a place where they're hanging paintings and like, 
Maybe they own them, maybe they don't. It's just a showing. When I feel like the public art, I feel like it's permanent. Why is this leaving? What was the deal? Just like a contract that sat there long. What was the deal with you and Olathe? And then how come now it's moving? So Olathe, um, this was not a purchase. Okay. Um, this was a, le- a lease. Got it. Um, and they have a program where every year they lease some number of pieces of public art for a year. Um, and then sometimes they extend it for a second year. Um, and I guess sometimes they, they buy the works as well. Um, so they um, asked me last spring if they could keep it for another year. And I, I was happy to do that. Um, and then this year, um, they, you know, I hadn't talked with them, but I found another opportunity um, in Evergreen, Colorado. And um, I thought that it would be a good opportunity to uh, to take isolation to a different venue. Uh, is this the is is isolation the largest one you've produced to date? Yes. Okay. Do you have visions? You know, you came from the credit cards, and when you think about this, do you have visions of like I want this to get bigger and bigger and bigger, or is there something about the size of this of isolation that feels like this feels like a good thing, reproducible, or this is where the edge of this spiral is? So, um, I think my works can get bigger, um, but I've I'm reaching um, some practical limits, uh, you know. Um, where I can't produce works um, in the materials that they would need to be to be larger um, by myself. So I'm, I'm kind of cost constrained right now. Okay. The, uh, yeah, I mean, having a, uh, a canvas with some paint is one thing, but having all this metal and wood and then having to craft it somewhere, do you craft it at your house or your own studio or do you have to go somewhere to put this stuff together? Uh, so, um, generally the piece isn't actually constructed, finally constructed until it gets where it's going. Okay. Um, I design the pieces, uh, generally, generally I have an idea of what I want it to look like and then, um, I'll model it in CAD software, um, that, uh, that gives me the opportunity to show it to an engineer who tells me, um, whether or not it's going to be safe. Okay. Um, and, uh, then, um, you know, the, the smaller pieces cutting and staining, uh, happens in my backyard and, um, the larger, the six by six beams, um, are, uh, locally sourced mm-hmm. spruce. Um, and then, um, the uh, two inch holes are bored through them. Um, at a friend's shop who has a turret lathe okay. um, that can bore holes that size. Um, so then the pieces are, are packed up in a truck and taken to wherever and assembled on site. Okay, so I am curious, looking through the thing, again, when I looked at isolation, I saw it in isolation. I'm like, oh, this is an independent piece. And then when I finally went, because I saw that post of yours, I went and looked at all the other stuff. I'm like, oh, this is a spiral, is a recurring theme. 
So it was interesting to you in a small size, and then you kind of found this recurring theme, but you've done it a lot. Like you built a lot of stuff with this spiral. How come you're not bored with this with this particular spiral? What is it about that keeps is still interesting to you? You think it's fun to keep making it? Um interesting question. So um with the exception of so there's this, this series, series six, um, that isolation is a part of. Um, I, I came up with this construction technique and, um, I found that through the use of different colors, uh, and different, um, uh, so generally there's, there's two holes in the beam. Okay. And one, one of the beam goes on the spine and the other hole, um, connects that beam to the next one and the previous one using shorter pieces of wood that I call interstitials. And those pieces of wood are what, what gives us, what holds the spiral, uh, in its shape. So it's not the, it's not the hole at the end that plugs into the metal. That's really hanging on to the thing. It's these interstitial pieces of wood that are, that go through all of them that hang it together in your shape. Exactly. The, the, the beams, um, can rotate freely around the spine. Oh, criminy. Um, yeah, it's just that they're held in place by by these interstitial pieces. Um, and I found that um, so uh, so generally the spine is a set distance from the interstitial on the beam. Okay. And it's it's generally four feet. But what I found is that if if the beam if the spine is closer to one end of the, of the beam mm-hmm. than another, it actually ends up looking fairly different. Um, the, uh, the isolation in Olathe, um, the, each beam actually, the, the holes are drilled in a different place on each beam. So the, the spine actually walks back and forth up and down, uh, up and down the beams. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I try not to be a one-trick pony, and so I'm, I'm doing different things with, with the spirals. Um, I produced my first metal piece last year, and it's in a, a sculpture park in Woodstock, Vermont, um, and it has a spiral shape. Uh, but the, the spiral and the interstitials as well, because they're the, the spiral is given its shape the same way all that stuff is underground. So you just see these cords sticking out of the, out of the ground. It's still a spiral. It's just, it's just, uh, hidden. I have, if you presented that, so if part of it is above ground and visible and part of it is below ground and invisible, unless what do you, do you have any, can you see the invisible parts of the sculpture or is it literally invisible? Okay. It's in the ground. Yeah. Are they uninteresting parts, sort of mechanical parts of that piece of art? Or if somehow they had something where it could be hung in midair, it would, to you, it would be even more interesting. Or was the underground stuff, the invisible stuff? No, no, no. The the effect is produced above ground. Yes. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That it would be interesting that there's stuff going underground. If only you could just suspend it in the air instead of having it have to be weighted into the ground. Yeah. So there's a um, there's a maquette for this piece um, that's um, you know, like a one tenth size, I guess, um, and that isn't embedded in the ground. And the um, the 
how the spiral is constructed is visible. And it's pretty interesting, actually, in the maquette. Um, but um, the yeah, the way that the piece, the piece is called underground, actually, it's sort of, you know, a nod to the fact that all the interesting stuff is underground. <laughs> um, but the, the, the bars that, that come out um, are, are striking um, and incongruous to the natural landscape. And um, so I, I think it's good, right? But it could, it could go either way. You know, you mentioned, I, hey, I don't want to be a one-trick pony. I feel like there is a pressure always on people who produce art, and especially people, if you're just doing it for fun, you don't care, you do whatever you want, you don't care what people like, but anytime you just, even just dipping your little toe into commerce and people's feedback and trying to improve or having produced things that people would want and they want to see, you can't help but be kind of pulled so would you still do, do you feel pressure to either keep doing these spirals that these cities and counties and local areas have seen and the patrons have seen? Like, I want something like that. Do you feel pressure to produce that way? Or is you, do you feel pressure to not do the same thing that people, when they ask for public art, they're like, we get it. You can make this kind of thing. Can you make anything else? So do you feel pressure on both sides or is one stronger than the other? Um. So that's a difficult question, right? Because I, you know, I'd, I would say, um, yes, I, I'd like to be a full-time professional artist. So um, I'll make what somebody wants to buy. Um, but on the other hand, um, my blue sky stuff, you know, the, my, my noodling about the future is, is all for me. Um, it, it's following uh, what I find interesting and the direction that I want to go. And my expectation is at the time that that's realized, um, that those artworks are realized that, you know, somebody will find them as interesting as I do. So that, I mean, the, um, so the, the spiral stuff has been, so you found it interesting, obviously before anybody else did, and you were doing it for you. And then it caught on and people liked it. You figure, hey, that same kind of wave that happened where people can't see the wave yet, but I can see the wave in the future. And eventually it will be, I will be ready to produce the thing. They'll be like, ooh, look at that. So all the stuff will be for you, the making, the growing toward that thing. And then eventually there will be some manifestation that's like, oh, look, this is amazing. You're like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, they're, they're, um, it, it's a, what am I trying to say here? It's a process. It's um, it's iterative. So the the works that I'm working on right now are still um, okay. So with the with the spirals that I'm doing, yes. you have a you have a spine, and then you have a beam, and the beam is offset, um, you know, eighteen inches to the right. E you know, e each beam that goes on is clockwise 18 inches more than the, the piece before that, right? So you end up, as you go down the, the spine, you end up with a spiral. So um, what, I'm, what I've been noodling with lately is, um, and I haven't actually started to do this yet other than the CAD, mm -hmm. uh, the CAD phase, uh, but um, casting concrete, reinforced concrete forms, mm -hmm. and then taking those forms and putting them right next to each other around a common spine offset just a little bit. So you'll get, you know, instead of just having a spiral um, 
you know, circling around the spine, you'll have these crazy shapes that, you know, that step off each other and form really interesting patterns and shadows and shapes. Uh, you've mentioned, so a par part-time thing, do you feel like whatever this interest in spirals, I feel like this is a super sophisticated evolution of the the bullshit doodles that everybody does, only you're manifesting this thing in a physical form with sophisticated development and sophisticated art. Where did this come from? Was it doodling? Where did where does your art where did your art come from? Where you thought, and now you're even you're part-time. Once upon a time, I'm sure you were zero artist. You probably didn't call yourself an artist. What happened there? Where did the art come from? Um so I, you know, I've always had an interest in, in creating things. And, uh, in fact, when I was in college, um, I, um, I didn't complete college, but while I was there, I was an art major. Um, and, um, when I got out, I, I did other things. Um, and, and you're right. Um, art didn't occur to me for a while. I was, I was still doing, um, you know, creative things or arts and crafts or, you know, but not in an intentional art practice sort of way. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, maybe, t you know, 20 years ago, I guess, um, is when I realized I had the stack of credit cards and, you know, it, um, you know, I guess there wasn't as much internet in those days, so I had nothing to do. <laughs> and so um, I started cutting up credit cards uh, and, and that was really, uh, the beginning of my intentional practice. What, when, um, when you were elementary school, junior high, high school, heading into college, did you dabble in all kinds of art or did you always have, it was clay or sculpture or it was physical as opposed to like drawing or writing? W which way did you lean? Um, definitely, um, you know, three-dimensional okay. things. Um, sculpture has always kind of been my thing. Did it used to be, did you think at one point you wanted to be like, I want to be a sculptor of, I mean, when people typically think of sculpture, they think of clay or stone. Did you think that's the way you wanted to go? Or did you even in the beginning pieces of pieces of things, instead of like, instead of sculpting a thing out of something else, you put the thing, you put the sculpture together for many little pieces that all come together. Did you lean one way or the other? Yeah. Um, so, um, I've never actually worked in, in stone or clay. Um, I, I find them interesting. Um, but I, I haven't really had the opportunity to, um, just the way that I work, uh, or the way that I think, I guess, um, lends myself to these assemblages. Yeah. Is there, what, what are the kinds of, it, does it feel very added? I mean, you have patrons, so that feels like a much closer people that know you who are local that you sell things to. You kind of de could develop relationships with patrons. Do you develop relationships with cities or um, consumers of public art the same way? Or is it a very different process? Is it like, I have a relationship with people one-on-one -on -one here. And this other thing is like RFPs and like requests. And it feels very distant. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, my relationship with um, exhibition mm -hmm. organizers is is much more transactional. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I generally, um, I'm 
I would, I would love to have more of a relationship um, with the people responsible for placing my work, but um, it, it generally doesn't seem to work out that way. Do how how often do you feel um, ho- hopeful about your growth as an artist, and how often do you feel frustrated that either it's not going the way you want it to go, or it's not going as fast as you want it to go? Um, I would say it's about fifty fifty. Um, um, you know, it's, it, it it never feels like it's going as fast as, as I want it to. Um, but at the same time, I have a certain capacity. Um, I'm generally very pleased with the feedback that I get, um, on my, uh, regarding my pieces. Um, but yeah, it's, uh. It, it's always frustrating to get um, a reply from some town that, you know, I thought was a shoe in uh, and they thank me for my work and wish me luck in the future. Where do you, do you feel like your work already, when you look out at the world of public art, do you feel like your work sits in some niche inside things people are looking for, or does it feel like kind of a wild and not very niche field public art? Um, interesting. Uh, I, it's, it's a niche field. Yeah. I would say that it is, um, you know, there's, there's representational art versus abstract art and, um, you know, different organizations are looking for, for different, um, for different things, right? If, if you have a, um, if you're doing a commemoration of uh, first responders for COVID, um, you know half of your jury is going to feel that it should be some light, airy thing that you know gives you hope for the future, and the other half of the jury thinks it should be like bronze castings of you know nurses and EMTs. Wait, cra- you you, know, you described the hope and the the hope and the positive and negative emotions as being 50-50. Does that mean every time you present one of these things, when you get to these juries or the people making the decisions, there are wildly different expectations about what the final thing is going to be? And then, I don't know, were you like threading the needle, trying to get through this little needle between these two people who are really not in agreement about what this final thing is supposed to be? So generally, you don't have that interaction. Okay, you wouldn't jury. even know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes if you're lucky, somebody will say, oh, um, your piece was liked by the entire jury, you know, but um, you never hear the negative. You, you never get honest feedback. Um, what artists were influential to you and are there current artists you look at today? Um, wh- who, who do you who did who did you used to look to that you liked and there are people today are really into? Um, well, I, um, I've always found Alexander Calder, um, his works are just, uh, absolutely stunning. And, uh, he's certainly been an inspiration for me. Um, um, I would prefer not to, not to discuss my feelings on current (laughs) artists. Um, just, 
uh, you know, not to not to diss anybody, but right. Um, so influ- influential. You mentioned Calder as an. Do you feel when you wade into the world of talking to artists about art, does does it start feeling like sort of jostling for like being positive and negative, and we're kind of like seeking status here and the people we say we like and the people we think are great, the people we say are terrible. I mean, is there, do you feel a lot of that? And you just like, like not to engage in that. Um, so generally I find that, um, I can only speak for, you know, my own where I find myself. Um, but I find that, um, people making large pieces of art, it's a small community and everybody tends to be supportive of each other. Um, you know, know, people are always uh, very willing to talk to you about their processes or techniques, uh, or to, to give you advice or suggestions, whether it's, um, you know, about some artistic process or business wise, did you ever feel like I think I talked to an artist a couple a couple years ago um, and talked about that thing being very willing to talk about processes, but at one I think she mentioned something about like you can feel different things. Sometimes it feels like you're getting squeezed for trade secrets. Have you ever felt like somebody came in and was like asking really pointed questions about? But how exactly do you do this? Because it's interesting. The stuff you do, it's not. I don't think it's easy to do. I think you. It takes time and effort and experience and craft to figure out how to do it. Do people ever come to you for like specifically like, how exactly do you do that? How do you bore those holes and how do you get that angle right and the weight of the thing? How do you manage that? Yeah, um, no, okay. no, but I would, I would be perfectly happy to help them, you know, with that. Um, you know, f- for my part, um, um, I have a team of um, advisors um, the, the friend of mine with the turret lathe is a, um, is a, a, uh, a machinist. Mm-hmm. He's a real genius and can figure out how to, um, make anything, um, in order to, um, so with isolation, um, isolation started out, um, I was accepted to two shows th- that the year that COVID struck and isolation was supposed to go to Jamestown, Rhode Island. And um, this other piece, Unrealized, mm-hmm. was supposed to go to Lenox, Massachusetts. And um, halfway through, I'd already ordered the wood. Uh, the Lenox show decided to uh, cancel or postpone uh, because of COVID. So um, isolation, I had already con- started construction on it. But all of a sudden, I had twice as much wood. And I was like, well, what, what am I going to do with right. it? And I, fi- I figured I would just expand isolation. So I, I spoke to the people in Jamestown, Rhode Island, and they, they were fine with that idea. Um, but then I had to circle back around to, to my engineer and say, you know, this piece is all of a sudden twice, twice as large. And at that point in time, the spine had been, the spine of all my works up to then had been like two-inch black iron pipe. Okay. And my engineer said, no, um, it really needs to be a two-and-a-half-inch um, structural steel um in order to to handle this extra weight so half of the half of these beams had already been bored with two inch holes that needed to be expanded to uh two and a half inch holes and um the uh my machinist uh invented this drill bit that 
uh, had a, a two inch piece of pipe leading into a, um, a two and a half inch Forstner bit. So it would um, steer itself down the length of the two inch hole and expand it to two and a half inches. Oh, criminy. Okay. Well, then you're talking about literally you're like, I, I can't be too, I, I feel like uh, trade secrets. Like, what are you talking about? I have to pull from these collaborators I have to help me figure out how to build this thing. Ev- like when things go crazy. So collaboration. Yeah. I mean, you know, that it's, it's a makerspace kind of idea, right? Like we all have our, our good ideas and, um, you know, frankly, I'm not too concerned about people copying what I did a couple of years ago, cause that's not where I am anymore. And, you know, can we all just work together and further our own, you know, all of our wants and needs? What is your favorite website to steer people to, to see your stuff? Uh, Bixie.com. B is in Bravo, X is in X-ray, I is in India, I is in India, E as in everything else.com. Uh, that's, that's my website. Um, I update it, um, at least once a year. Uh, so it's not necessarily, uh, my latest, uh, my latest stuff, but generally in the fall, um, I update it with everything that I've done the previous art season. So you're not like obsessively keeping up with necessarily as soon as I make something, I put it right up. Like that's, you just, it's like a seasonal thing. You're like, occasionally I go and put the stuff on there. Um, yeah. So I have an art season, uh, or, you know, an art schedule. Um, and my production phase when I'm, uh, physically producing stuff and setting it up tends to be, um, now, uh, through June or July. Okay. Spring through the Um, spring through the summer. Yeah. Um, and, and so then at the end of that, I update my website so that, um, my next, my next round of things is finding shows for the following season. And so it's good for the website to be up to date for that. 